All right, so we are back with episode seven in a series talking about Band of Brothers. This one's called The Breaking Point, or we're talking about one called The Breaking Point. Joined again by Sayer Payne. Sayer, thanks for being here. You got it. So this is episode seven of 10, and full disclosure, this is the second time we've done this episode because uh, the first time my audio was all messed up. So Sayer was fine. Uh, mine had some like really bad static that I couldn't edit out. It was overwhelming so we get to do it again we'll consider that last from a dry run for better i mean it, it might have been the best podcast of all podcasts um <laughs> but we're just gonna have to make do i'll save it then just in case so okay. just in case we could yeah we'll have it in the uh in the records so again this is episode seven of ten diving into band of brothers and just a little preview of what's to come um of course we're going to wrap up band of brothers here in the next couple weeks um but looking at diving into another series after this. And as of right now, I think that's going to be the Pacific. So yeah. World War II series focused in the Pacific, just had a lot more feedback, a lot more um, requests, if you will, to dive into that series. So get ready, Sarah. Yeah. And hey, I think that's a great idea. Um, I like it. I haven't even seen the whole series. I, I dabbled in it a little bit. Really? but um, So I'm looking forward to rewatching it. I haven't watched a whole lot of war stuff, honestly. I tried watching it when I got back, and I just got bored with it, to be honest, because it just wasn't um, – I didn't care as much, right? But, you know, 10 years later, I'm getting back into the swing of things here. And um, I think it would be real interesting to watch. And uh, I love the ideas. So if anybody has other ideas, hey, send them out. For sure. So this episode, we've talked before how every episode has – you know, a voice or a main character, kind of somebody that it follows. This one, episode seven, follows First Sergeant Lipton. So the senior enlisted soldier in Easy Company. Um, but the theme of the episode, even if it follows Lipton, is about, in, in my opinion, Lieutenant Dyke, hmm. which makes for, you know, a, a, it's, it's going to be a fun conversation because a lot of what we've dove into here with Band of Brothers talks about leadership. And we're going to see some kind of rough leadership with Dyke, the new company commander. Yep. And, um, and then, uh, especially like the guys, uh, the enlisted folk that have to deal with it. They don't, they don't get to choose. They're just thrown an officer and you got to deal with it. There's a comment that first Sergeant Lipton brings it up later, but you just hear it throughout. Where's Dyke? Where's Dyke? Where's Dyke? And it's interesting because you hear it from every level. You hear the junior enlisted, where's Dyke? You hear the non-commissioned officers. You hear the other platoon leaders, where's Dyke? You even hear, at this point, still Captain Winters, who I don't believe he's the battalion commander, but I think he's the acting battalion commander, where's Dyke? It is coming from every direction. Nobody knows where this guy is. And it's kind of crazy if you think about it, on a battlefield where you're surrounded to, well, I guess it this point in the episode they've technically broken out from the bulge but anyways they're right on the front lines nobody can find them that's interesting it is interesting in that environment i don't know here's what i don't know are they in a big they got to be in a big patrol base essentially in a big circle i would guess and then easy company is from the 12 to the three o'clock and then you know fox is from the three to the six, and then you got another, I, I don't know. And then in the middle, you've got battalion and the CP. I don't know what that, you know, cause uh, 
Captain Winters wasn't on the line, hold security. Battalion wasn't. Um, it seems like Sink was not out there physically. I think we get that impression, but I'm just trying to sort of set the stage of what this, what this looked like, um, pulling security. I, and then, yeah, where do you go? Um, you would think Winters wouldn't want him hanging around either, because if he's around Winters, Winters is going to know that Dyke, and probably Winters was asking, where's Dyke? And the company's asking, where's Dyke? And maybe he's just somewhere by himself. I don't know. The way they asked that question to me doesn't mean I can't find him right now. It's we never know where he is. And it's every group saying we never know where he is, where to me, it, it comes across. We've, there's nobody coming to mind. I'll say that, but we've certainly worked with people who everybody thinks they're somewhere else, right? Mm. The company thinks they're with battalion. The battalion thinks they're with the company. The platoon thinks they're with the company. The company thinks they're with the platoon and they're just hanging out somewhere, not actually doing yeah. anything. Um, uh, that yeah. seems like Dyke's game. I don't know, but it just kind of, and maybe not even intentionally. Um, I'll try to give him the benefit of the doubt here, but he found some middle ground, it seems like. Sure. Um, yeah, he, and it is interesting because, like, as the officer side of things, there is a CP with other officers, and the CP is kind of in the middle. It's not on the line. And um, that is where you go to get information and mission. And then you're kind of friends with those people because when you're back on the line, you're the sole officer. Uh, he's a company commander. He's got a couple other ones, but it's a lonely job too. Um, Cause he has no peer, but I guess my point is um, you just don't want to hang out there too long because your guys are out there on the line and it's awkward in a sense. And it's like this fine line because a lot of times yeah. I might, I might've wanted to be in the CP hanging out, but then you got, it's just that presence of being an officer and that has nothing to do with actually tactics at all, by the way nothing about combat or infantry it's just uh, a a presence that the collective suffering that you're willing to go through it with everybody else yeah i agree i i was that's a great point so as an officer and as in, in dyke's position here he has to be in all of those places each person that's looking for him expect him to be around to mm-hmm. some degree he is supposed to be around battalion enough get his orders and relay information back. He, he has to be. Um, there's scenarios we, we can get into some later where maybe a runner or just a RTO radio um, operator would be sufficient, but he should be face-to-face with the battalion commander. He should also be with his first sergeant. He should also be at the very front lines checking on his guys in the trenches. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there's no, there's no recipe for that. And I, so, something that, if, just a, a personal side, I feel like in my experience, whenever you feel like when you're in one of those different groups, whenever you feel like you're just hanging out, like I'm not actually doing anything right now. I'm just hanging out. The only place to do that is, is with your guys. You shouldn't yeah. just be hanging out up, right? Just hang out on the line. That makes sense. That's a very good point because I would say, yeah, if I'm sitting there at the CP at that big table or something and they're giving me information, um, there comes a point where you've got the information and it becomes a bullshit session naturally um, just because you're in a break. And that's kind of like, I agree with you. That's kind of like that trigger. Like I need to get out of here um, because, and then 
I think there's also a lot of people that want to avoid headquarters as much as possible. I would like to admit that or state that, that, uh, you know, some people like to hang around what's called the flagpole. Other people like to avoid it because when you avoid it, you kind of get to do your own shit. And that just depends on the type of person you are. And to be fair, we're throwing some rules and things that don't really have rules. It's, um, it's, it's all unique. Every situation is unique, right? But as we'll see throughout this series, being with their people, being with their soldiers is, I mean, it seems to be valued above everything, which isn't crazy, especially when they're in a tough spot like Bastogne or here on the edge of the town of four. And again, it's got nothing to do with battle drills or how to set up an ambush or any of those sort of things, or how to, sh- you know, shooting anything. Um, it's just being physically present and situational awareness. I'd say, I mean, and again, that's, that's any leadership. I, you can apply that as a manager for some sort of corporation. It just, just being the collective suffering of those, those that you're asking them to do something that's probably not comfortable, which is any sort of work or chore doesn't again, have to be combat. Um, But just showing and you don't even have to physically do it side by side with them either all the time. It's just literally just checking in and then, hey, what you need? Can I help you with it? Is there anything you need? Because I do have abilities. Because by the way, I've got access to the CP. You don't. So what can I convey to hire um, to get you guys what you need down here? It's not tactics. And that goes back to the art of leadership. Yeah, so... This episode does a good job in something. I mean, it's one of the reasons I love this series, but it shows kind of, a, you know, maybe some negative examples of leadership. And I think it's worth noting that, look, the military is just like any other organization. There's good and bad. There's good people and bad people. And they, just because somebody's in the army, just because they're an officer, just because they're a company commander, doesn't mean they're a good leader. It doesn't mean that they won't be in the future. Maybe it's a bad spot for them. Maybe it's a bad fit for them. Um, but I think it's easy, especially when we look back at this point, we're looking 80 years back to just assume a company commander in the infantry in the 101st Airborne in, you know, in Bastogne, that's going to be a leader. But, but maybe not. Maybe Dyke was in the wrong place. Maybe that wasn't the type of job he should have held um, at that time. Maybe Dyke didn't want to be there at all. And he just found himself at the age of whatever, 23, in the time of a world war. And he's a college graduate and he's just, and he's trying to do his part and he got infantry and, you know, and they sent him to the line. I mean, he, he we don't know, maybe he, he's just trying his best and he's put in this position and you got to make do with it. It's the Sobel situation. Sobel got moved on. Sobel was good at training soldiers, like a physical standpoint, getting them whipped into shape from Kansas or wherever they were as a farm boy to an infantryman. He was able to do that. Those are, those are uh, necessary results to be able to, to get them to what they're doing today on a continued basis. I mean, the physicality of it is, is paramount. You can't be a liability um, of your own self. You're, you're already worried about getting wounded from the enemy. You can't wound yourself in the sense of going down because of it, um, not being physically fit. So um, dive strength was not tactics. So, so that's a good, yeah, so that's a good point. He got a shot. He got a shot on the line. He was a name with an MOS and a rank attached to him. Everybody's expected to be able to do their job. So they put him in the job. 
And then if you can do it or can't do it, it's going to depend on uh, what happens when you're on the ground. And, you know, this is something I, I think we spent some time talking about with Captain Sobel early in the, in the series here, but it doesn't mean that he's a, a bad person or a bad soldier. He's just not at least portrayed here, the right fit for this job at that time. Maybe he would go on to be a wonderful brigade commander. Who knows? Maybe he's meant to be an intelligence officer. I don't know. But this specific role doesn't fit. And that happens. It happens in the Army. It happens, it happens in every job and every, in every profession around the world. Um, so I think that's worth noting. He's, he, he certainly gets knocked quite a bit here, but it's just not the spot for him. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about replacing Dyke, though, because this is another piece that we've got a little more insight maybe coming from the Army, how this replacement process works for officers. And I got it. It's different World War II to modern day. But I think one thing that holds true is it's just not as simple. You don't have 60 officers on the bench and you can just say, him, you come on up. They're shifting around. And Winters talks about it at one point, says, well, who would I replace him with? And it's just a jigsaw puzzle, right? Everything impacts one another. So it seems simple, just get rid of this guy. But I, I don't know that they necessarily had. And, and take the politics thing out of it. They hint at that. But if you take that out of it, I don't know that they really had somebody lined up, not to spoil how the episode turns out, but it's a challenge. Well, and I think it's important to note that they don't mention this, but generally, and I, and I, I agree with this, it's better to not come in from that same company or, or just rise up internally through the ranks to become the company commander. We, we have that with winners, but really he's just a staff officer right now at battalion. He's not the commander of it. I do think it's better to have people coming in from outside units because they can start anew there. If, because it, let's say, uh, if you promote one of the platoon leaders that was a like guy like Compton, is he's a Tacoa? No, is he Tacoa original? I don't know, but he's definitely a D-Day. He's been there as a yeah, PL. Yeah, he was Tacoa guy, yeah. The, the whole way through with these guys. And um, he he's tied to his platoon primarily and then his company. But so his relationship, though, organically is with that platoon. That's going to create its own sort of uh, fraternity that they have. And then all of a sudden be the company commander in charge of the other two platoons. It, it doesn't set the company up for success as much as, a, as, a, as another, as a stranger coming in from a different company, a different PM. So I, you know, it would be like, you know, you put Compton in, in Charlie company and then get a Charlie company guy to come. But again, and I think that's why they're mentioning Spears and other people also, but again, where do they come from? Cause they're all short. Um, they're all short staffed though is the other issue. And, but I'm just saying where, where does Dyke comes out of the blue? Maybe that explains why he's coming out of the blue just for that reason, which is commonplace today. That's why the, I think that is, while it is terrible to not terrible, but the whole moving around thing kind of sucks. But what that also does, it makes you, you, you're fresh and you have to kind of reprove yourself and, and, and you don't have any former biases or, or buddies or anything like that. You're just, you're, you're back to your name, your rank, in your MOS, and then you got to prove it. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing I was thinking about with, you know, the the possibility of replacing Dyke is First Sergeant Lipton is a solid leader, a solid NCO, mm-hmm. and he's right at the top of the company. And later in the episode, I think it's it's Lieutenant Spears 
that says, or Captain Spears, Lieutenant Spears, I think still, okay. says, you know, first sergeant, you are the one leading this company for a long time. So if you have a solid, if you have solid NCO leadership at the top, they might be looking across the board and saying, for another company that has a weaker first sergeant, we need to replace that company commander first with a stronger company commander, right? So maybe Dyke fits in with Easy Company because the NCO leadership is so strong. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, the performance of the company, NCOs are the ones who get it done at the end of the day. They're the ones executing. They're the doers. And so if you've got a bunch of doers that need little oversight, then it, you wouldn't want to put a very strong company commander in because it's kind of a waste. You would put that strong company commander where they've had either weaker NCOs or maybe more casualties, more, maybe they just have, um, uh, maybe another company's got the, it's the opposite where maybe it, more NCOs got killed and the ones that had to get become NCOs now are not really ready for it. They're a little more inexperienced, but they have to fill the spot because there's nobody else to do it. And so maybe a more experienced company commander, that's the role for that person to help kind of plus up and train uh, the NCOs to help balance that. Cause you're not going to get perfect and rarely do you get two studs or all studs. It's especially here. There are no right answers. They're all just reacting to the situation. Nobody necessarily planned for any of this. It's just, it's what it is. It's war. So a major part of the episode, kind of the defining part of the episode, if you will, is an attack on this small, small village of Foy. But before we get to that, I want to talk about what I think was maybe the most professional scene, certainly in this episode, if not the series, when First Sergeant Lipton goes to Captain Winters and you can tell he's struggling to get it out. And he says, essentially, that we have no confidence in Lieutenant Dyke. The company's fine. Lieutenant Dyke is an empty uniform. And you can see the respect both ways. Um, Lipton knows that he is, he's, he's crossing a line. Um, it's a line that can be crossed, but you have to be very, very careful about when and how. That's the kind of thing where, um, kind of like the boy who cried wolf. If you're always standing up saying, mm-hmm. my boss is horrible, my boss is horrible, nobody's going to listen. Lipton hasn't done that. So the one time he really does, it stands out. And I think it's an impressive scene because, or at least how it showed in the, in the series, because I think they both recognize nothing can be done. And that's an opportunity where two old friends could sit there and just vent and gripe. And can you believe this guy? He's awful. And here's what I would have done. Here's what we should do. But instead, I think Captain Winters just says, thank you. That'll be all. Mm-hmm. Just they and, both know. Yeah. And well, actually, I think Lipton might have been to that cohort with Sobel. I think he's done it. This might be a second I don't, time. I don't, don't, I don't. I know what you're talking about. I don't remember him being in that scene marching into Sink's office. He might have been, but yeah, I can't remember. Uh, anyways, I got you. Yeah, it's in, well. The point is, though, that well, it's a little bit different with winners for one. Their relationship is much different than that relationship pre-deployment with Sobel, anyway. And um, I agree with you that it wasn't it wasn't complaining wasn't complaining and there's a nuance there between a complaint and a uh, a matter that needs addressed and must be said because you're not supposed to say those type of things when you're a first you know uh, the first, 
it's not, do you think Lipton wanted to go to talk to winners and do that? Um, it's just, I'm sure he had that ball in his stomach of fuck. This is not what I want to be doing right now. But um, that's exactly why Spears was right. I mean, his uh, Lipton's leadership and guidance, he was looking out for the company. He wasn't looking out for Lipton. He wasn't complaining that like, I wish my company commander was better so that I could do my job better as a first sergeant. No, it was this guy's a liability to, to, to the force, not to me, but to everybody else. And that, that's the story to me. But it's also the way I view, I mean, there's a camaraderie, whether it's at the squad, platoon, company level on up. So as a first sergeant, as a company commander, you don't want to go one level up and say, my, you know, my teammate isn't cutting it because you want to be the one to get him up to speed, right? It's not, it's not just a knock on that person. It's a knock on your whole organization. So you'll defend that person. And we'll see it throughout the episode. Lipton will defend Lieutenant Dyke right. in front of the soldiers, right? Because right. they're one team. No, no, no. Don't knock him. You're knocking all of us. Um, so, so stepping out and going to Winters to say, essentially, I need, I can't do this. You know, we can't do anything about this anymore. And it's a problem. And what did Winters do? He did the same thing. He pushed it up to his boss. But when some, you know, Lipton come. Up the rank is where you bring those issues. Down the rank, solidarity. Keep that force cohesive. Don't, um, the shit talking, the negativity is a disease and it really spreads. Um, so you got to squash it. So even with a guy like Lipton, you know, Winters agrees with him, but he's not necessarily, he's not a cheerleading Lipton. He's just kind of, yep, I got it. And that's what Sink was doing to uh, Winters. I mean, any of these type of discussions, you know, that, um, that's just, that's just sort of how it works. And, and you, you almost get taught that. I mean, I was, they teach us that. And, uh, I just remember being, it's just like the code, the ethos. And I don't know if they were taught that or that's just what they're doing organically, but, um, it is a way to get results too, by the way, is that sort of, um, approach it's tact is what it is too part of it's tact well let's move on um i want to get into the attack on foy which they start the episode out saying we know this is coming they're in an area called the bois jack uh which is i guess french um for jack's woods it's a a name Mm. of a part of of the arden forest which is massive so they named this little section not the 101st airborne but the locals had named that section, the Bois Jack, Jack's Woods. They're preparing to attack. And um, eventually they do. They move down to assault that the, I mean, I'll keep saying town, but I mean, it's a series of a couple buildings. We'll eventually get to talking about Lieutenant Spears running through town. And that sounds crazy, but the town from one side to the other is like 300 meters. There's like, there's just not a lot there. So it's, right. it's just a tiny little intersection that the, uh, that easy company is going to at least take part in the attack um, to take. They move down through the tree line, they start the attack and almost immediately Lieutenant Dyke just seizes up, um, freezes, maybe begins to overcomplicate things, overthinks things and starts making changes to the plan before it's even started to really play out. And it goes back, 
for me, it goes back to a previous comment by, I guess it was first Sergeant Lipton, who said Dyke wasn't a bad leader because he made the wrong decisions, it's because he made no decisions. And it seems like the decision's been made here for the attack, and in the middle of it, he says, stop, we need to rethink it. I mean, is there a worse time to stop than in the middle of an assault like that? I mean, that's really the issue. I mean, from a tactics thing, I don't know the big picture as in uh, was it easy company to get the foothold and then another company to come in and, and assault more, or secure more, something like that. Because you could see them kind of waiting in the rear. Um, there were units, friendly forces back there. But at the end of the day, we know that they were supposed to get into the town somehow, which is a foothold. Um, which means to get into a building, uh, to push in there and, and to push the Germans out. Um, and the only way to, and, and the issue is you've got easy company has having to go from, uh, concealed and covered wooded position, wanting to get into another concealed and covered position. But, and the, the issue there is the Germans are in those positions and they're, ha- and they're fortified. You got machine guns and all sorts of, um, weapons yeah. and, the only way to do that is violence of action. There, you, there is no cover in a field. There's just zero cover. And so if, if you just stop moving, you, you're just sitting ducks to get picked off. And, and any forward progress you've made is, is completely zapped away. And so it, it has to be, you either keep going forward into, until you can finally get in, fight into a building and clear and secure one building, and then you can start leapfrogging. Um, or you got to just retreat and break contact back into that covered and concealed position. But at no place do you want to be stationary is going to be an open field. So Dyke gets to the point where he's freaking out a little bit. He can't see every piece of the operation, which um, you never can. I mean, you really, I mean, I guess there are ways today, right? We've got got UAVs, shadows, predators, aircraft overhead that we can potentially kind of watch the operation. But it's just, especially in 1945, I guess this would have been 45. Yeah, they're not seeing that, which means it comes down to trust. Um, Every one of his platoon leaders and platoon sergeants knew the plan. They briefed their guys in the plan and they were executing. And I was talking with my um, father-in-law the other day about D-Day, Eisenhower on D-Day, and kind of the stress he must have felt because, well, there we go, Eisenhower on the back wall there. Um, massive, massive operation. And all of the planning that went into that, by the time he gave the go order, all he could do for the next 24 hours was mess it up. Everybody had their plan that they were executing. There was nothing Eisenhower could do to make it better. Mm-hmm. Right. Just by inserting himself, even asking for updates at various times could have been bad. But, but changing something... I mean, way too many moving pieces. And he, he's talked about that. Essentially, once he said go, he went back, had a few, had a few more cigarettes, some coffee, and waited for reports. Right. You gotta, there's got to be some level of trust. Mm. Or you see this. You see Dyke saying, stop. I need a report. You're like, a report? Mm. <laughs> You're 10 seconds into the attack. Go. Uh, yeah, it's... Um... There's no time for that, and, and it's completely unnecessary because, again, 
you, that it disrupts the violence of action, the flow of things. That's that's Eisenhower. Oh, but wait, oh, you do that, and then it just it completely screws everything up. Um, it, that all that momentum because nothing is perfect. Perfect is the enemy of good, in fact. And so the action and the pressure and the aggression is again, it's not even a tactic. That's not in the you know, it's not about exactly where each person is and what each person's doing. It's just that aggression. And then we're, we're taking it no matter what and, and just keep moving forward. Can you talk for a minute about intent? Because I think there's, I mean, you've been a platoon leader in combat. This is something you had to do. You had to understand intent to execute and you had to um, make sure your squad leaders, platoon sergeant understood your intent. Um, and I think it's something that's not well known outside of the military, that that's how the military operates. So a mission like this, it's not like everybody had their exact specific, you know, stick to the T you'll step here and then move behind this building and then clear that room. There's kind of a, it's looser than that. Would you mind going into that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, in reality, there's what's called principles of patrolling and and the battle drills and tactics. And everybody's supposed to have a core competency of those things. It's, it's expected, in fact, because you train up before you get there. Um, everybody has it here. We know that because of the COA. Conventionally now, we do our JRTCs and all of our pre-deployment type training on sort of those fundamentals. And the whole point of that is so that you can act without thinking. It's the whole point because uh, it's chaos on the battlefield. And so the more things you have to think about, the more complicated it becomes and you, and you want to keep it simple as simple as possible. So you can focus on that violence of action and commander's intent. Maybe I think the misconception is I, I think they, a lot of people think that people in the military, all they do is follow orders and, and they do what they're told almost like a robot or something. Um, and there's no objecting and there's, it's just move out violence of action. I'm sort of talking about it. Aren't I? Everybody's going to go into the village, no matter who does that's, you know, I think that that becomes the impression a lot of times, but commander's intent is going to be based off of, it's very leadership heavy. And it's because the commander is going to come up with a plan and give his or her subordinate leaders a left and right limit. And that left and right limit for a strong, we've, we've talked about strong leaders. A left and right limit for a strong platoon leader, let's say, is going to be very wide. You're going to give them pretty broad discretion. Maybe that platoon leader also has great NCOs, great platoon leader. They're going to have the broadest discretion of them all. Now, maybe a younger platoon leader with weaker NCOs, that commander is going to give them little tighter parameters. But still, at the end of the day, whatever that platoon leader is doing, it's, it's that platoon leader's discretion now on the ground. So as long as it fits, with whatever the goal, the big goal of the commander, they're just going to do it. And that means they have to make a decision. The commander's not there to make the decision. The commander says, hey, you know that we're going northeast, right? So you pick the route. You, uh, the azimuth, the, um, where you want to set up security, that company commander is not going to be micromanaging all of those things. And that's... Um, it's easier said than done. I mean, it takes training and trust and you got to know your people, but at the end of the day, you're, 
when you're on the ground as a uh, as a platoon leader, as a company commander, any of these roles, a battalion commander, you're all working within these these left and right limits from higher that give you as the leader who's actually on the ground uh, the power to make decisions because higher up understands the, the way this works is because they know that those on the ground are seeing things in real time. And it might be different than whatever intelligence is saying. It might be different than whatever we were told in the past or whatever. You've got the doers on the ground and you want the doers on the ground to be able to improvise, to call audibles. You don't want them following things strictly to the T. You don't want absolute rule followers. Those are the ones who can't think for themselves. And those are the ones who get people killed. So as an example here, the, the intent might be for first platoon to clear a building, clear a building. Whereas I think a lot of people might think it's, it's, you know, you'll, so that means it's up to the platoon to figure out the order of movement, which squad moves when, where the support by fire goes, what the assaulting element is. Are they going to hit the house from the North, East, South, or South or West? And if they start coming in and their plan is to hit from the North, but there's two machine guns on the North side sticking out their doors, that's a stupid place to go. So you're going to make right. a change on the fly. But the company commander, battalion commander that said, you're going to hit it from the north, they don't see that at that point. So it's staying within that intent, right? To be able to say, okay, easy, we'll shift around. And what is the intent? It's not secure building 542 or whatever it may be. The intent is to just get a foothold into Foy. We need to, the intent is this. We will, we need to get out of this forest and then get into a building down in Foy. Easy company, you're doing that. That's the intent. There you go. So Dyke is kind of interrupting that is maybe the way to put it when he starts getting very specific and very, very needy early in the mm-hmm. operation. That doesn't help anybody. So if we zoom back out to Captain Winters, he's in the wood line with Colonel Sink and with at least some other elements um, of the battalion. And Winters doesn't hesitate. He sees the hesitation on the battlefield, turns around. Well, looks like he's going to run out of the battlefield himself gets stopped, mm-hmm. turns around, and yells for Lieutenant Dyke to go out, excuse me, yells for Lieutenant Spears to go out and replace Dyke as the company commander and take the assault in. If I'm not mistaken, I believe I read that Winters said that he hadn't planned on Dyke being the replacement, but when he turned around, Dyke was the first officer. Gosh, I keep messing this up. I believe Winters said that he hadn't planned on Spears being the replacement. But when he turned around, Spears was the first officer he saw. He said, hmm. you go. Interesting. And it's not, well, I mean, it, if you think about it, what he's not, not like he's going to have his replacement sitting there waiting to go on the assault. That doesn't make a lot true. of sense. Well, that's also true. And that probably shows, well, obviously it was a good pick. But if, if that is the case, you're just picking an infant name, rank, MOS guy to replace another one. Um, and it could be anybody it, it can, in the middle of a firefight. It does show the desperation and incompetence. If you, th- if you think about it that way, it, he's literally winners are saying literally anybody, but this guy has got to go, go. Um, thankfully it was a guy like Spears. Thankfully. Now to be fair, the, the series makes it, you know, builds it up to where you might hear that and say, no way, no way is that the coincidence, but you don't hear about any other platoon leaders in the battalion, the entire show. There's a reason they talk about Spears early on. And it's because he comes back to lead easy company. Right. So, yeah. Um, I don't think you don't know about anybody. And yeah, 
you don't know anything about any of the other company commanders, any other first sergeants. So I think right. that's the reason that, that he's, uh, his character is built up throughout, but yeah. um, Spears that's does the lit- That's a literary device. Right? There we go. I mean, that's really what it is. It's foreshadowing um, because we don't want that. We want to at least be comfortable because you got to remember the the easy company knew who Spears was. And so we, as the viewer have to know, I, Spears, I'm pretty sure it's a co-original type guy. He's been around the dog company this whole time. Um, so they knew who he was. He wasn't a total stranger. But if, if all of a sudden we just see this guy that Winters Taps, episode seven, to go, he would be a total stranger to us, the viewer. So you're, you're keeping your calm here, and I didn't know that you would, but didn't we find out earlier today that you and Spears share a little history? Well, I don't know. It's confusing because <laughs> it's Wikipedia. Um, Wikipedia said that on that... Um, well, the D-Day grenade assault of um, the guns, the ones that we talked about with Winters, that during that one, uh, Spears was Delta Cunt or Dog Company, second platoon. And that's what I was. So it's just, you know, I'm, I'm always tied. for Yeah, we were Dog Company. I don't know if anybody, I don't know if we actually said that, but our company was D-502, not six. But, um, and then, yeah, I was second platoon. So I'm always forever tied to to second platoon i always identify with that and then now you have a delta coming thing and then i freaking love spears i mean geez what to me what's not to like about that guy let's talk about him man so he he takes over the attack gets doesn't really even get a briefing from dyke dyke is zoned out he's maybe in a little bit of shock um overwhelmed maybe to say the least and he does the exact opposite he issues very brief broad orders to the different platoons, you know, bam, 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 execute. That's yeah. how, I mean, look at who he's working with though. He's got experienced NCOs, experienced soldiers. I know there's replacements in the ranks, but these guys don't need to be, they don't need to tiptoe through the assault. They already had a briefing before they went out there and he just one, two, three, good, go. See you on the other side. Let them do their thing. And then you're there if, if, to call audibles if, if, if it's not going well. But let them do their thing. Trust, trust in your subordinates, trust in, in, in the people that you're with. That's why the training and everything they've done up to this point, that's why it's always so important. You know, you identify malingers, you identify the ones who aren't present, you weed them out ruthlessly so that when it's time to go, you let them go. And I think this is a good example of um, sometimes your job as a leader is to get out of the way and mm-hmm. empower your people to go. He knows that the NCOs and the junior leaders in the platoons are strong. And the more oversight, the more direction he gives, the more he takes away from their ability to improvise in the battlefield and execute as they see fit. So if he can just give an order of, you go around to the right, I'm coming up the middle. It lets that whole platoon figure out how to get the job done. He's stepping out of the way. He's, the, the episode from here forward, it tends to, to really highlight Spears. It doesn't show what's happening with the rest mm-hmm. of the uh, with the rest of the unit, but that's what he did, in my opinion. Is he got out of the way? Said the company's going to go forward. If you let let people solve their own problems, they're going to find a way out. If you try to tell them the solution before they have a chance to think about it, they're going to get fucking pissed off. It's micromanagement, um, and you know we were just shitting on a uh, diet. Hey, where's Dyke? He wasn't present. That's what we're talking about right now. So now it's like this weird conflicting thing because first we're saying, okay, Dyke wasn't present. That's a bad thing. Now we're saying um, Spears wasn't all up in their face present. 
And that's a, that's a good thing. So it's like, wait a minute, those are, but that's the art. That's the balance. There are times when you need to be there and be engaged. Then there are times where you need to step back and, and let them do their thing. There, there's no perfect answer for any of these things. And that, that's why it's an art. It is not a science. I like it. So let's get into the actual attack. Spears leads the men in and then does what you know, they described as the unthinkable, tries to link up with a unit that's coming from the other side of town. They're not there. So he runs through town, um, then comes back. I, I think this is a, it's a cool piece here because it seems like it was very easy for them to Hollywood it and they didn't. The Hollywood version would have been that he stopped in the middle of town and started mowing down Germans left and right. You know, just the Rambo, one man wrecking ball going through town. But that's not his job. His job is to communicate. He's a leader. His job is to coordinate, communicate, and and, and organize this attack. The German defenders don't stand a chance if these two companies can make their way into town, but they can certainly stand a chance against one lieutenant with a Thompson. So mm-hmm. he, doesn't, he doesn't stop and attack everyone he sees. Even though he ran right by Germans, he went um, through, linked up, communicated. Yeah. I, I remember when I did, um, in ROTC, I had a, a first sergeant who used to be in a Ranger Regiment. And he told us during live fires, because we were doing sort of the inner building clear room, that kind of urban type stuff. And he said that uh, lieutenants in regiment trained with rubber, rubber ducks, which is a fake sort of M4 just to teach them not to shoot. Your job isn't to shoot. It's, you know, collectively, you're shoot, move, communicate. Okay. Well, the platoon leader employs the shooters and makes sure we're moving and and most definitely ensures we have proper communication. Um, They're not the trigger puller. Not really designed to be, not supposed to be. I like that he has a Thompson. I don't know how he got that deal, but that's pretty sweet gun because it's not, to me, it's kind of like hearing a shotgun a little bit. So, it's close quarters type stuff. Yeah. Shoot from the hip, spray a trench out. So I don't know how he got that gig, but again, another reason I like Spears. Badass. I mean, um, I keep saying this, you know, my, Hey, I think this is my favorite episode. This has to be one of my favorite episodes. Uh, yeah. I did like the, I like, I do like some more than others, but that's the scene really where, um, where Dyke is getting replaced and we've got um, Spears hard charging into the, into, he doesn't even think twice. He just goes, follow me get the quick sit rep from the NCOs and then just move on, move out. And then they did complete the mission. Um, it's just awesome. It gives me goosebumps. I got goosebumps talking about it, to be honest. So that's a good point. I like that. Um, that story of Ranger Regiment carrying rubber ducks, like really drilling at home. I, I had a uh, instructor at West Point that said, if, if, if there's a fight and the officer is shooting, something's gone wrong. Not as in like, they're too close. The enemy's too close. You might be overrun. You might, you know, you don't have enough. You didn't bring enough firepower to the fight. Maybe you didn't coordinate assets well enough ahead of time. Um, it doesn't mean that the officer should never be shooting. That's not at all the case, but um, especially in a conventional fight, to your point, there's a lot of other things they can be doing that brings more power to the battlefield than picking up an M4, picking up a, uh, an M1 and slinging a couple rounds at the enemy. Yeah. I mean, if, if, a, if the lieutenant is, let's say, holding the line, that's a, that's, they're having a bad day. They're having a bad day. I mean, any time I shot was because, you know, I'm just not going to fucking sit here and not shoot back with a perfectly good weapon in my hands. Um, uh, but I didn't need to. You know, mine, 
my rounds weren't moving the needle much. They were mostly for me. And, you know, I know it sounds silly, like why not shoot? Well, every second matters. So what else could that officer be doing? Could they be communicating with another platoon, getting a sit rep on second platoon? Um, figuring out where one of their squads went, understanding if somebody needs more ammo, or are they going to coordinate an artillery strike or a medevac? Every second for every one of those pieces of communica- communication could mean life or death. Mm-hmm. So I got it. You're just going to fire off five or six rounds. It's not a big deal. It is a big deal. That's five, six, seven seconds later that maybe you could have been lining up mortars, That's artillery, right. and, which, yeah. which would have a bigger impact in allowing a platoon to withdraw when needed, right? So um, there's a lot of people that can shoot. There really are. Yep. Not a lot of people can coordinate those other things that need to be done. So, um, and, and you also have an issue of ammo. Um, there, we even had, I mean, they had much more logistical issues than we ever, I mean, complete and entirely. We had things at our disposal that was just unreal, but we'd go black on ammo sometimes out there. So I would also have, you know, we'd have to know I should, uh, I need to chuck, I need to save because I might need to chuck my magazine to someone else. I probably just need one. I mean, that's another thing too, is just, um, just knowing your weapon systems and those weapon systems are individual trigger pullers on an M4. you got machine guns. And then, like you mentioned, you got mortars. That's a weapon system. You have artillery. That's a weapon system. You know, for us, we had helicopters and other aviation assets. Those were the big, I mean, those are the, those are the money makers right there. Um, and that's what moves the needle. That's what moves the needle. And to clarify, I said, nobody else, I don't remember if I said could do it, that what I should have said is nobody else. That's nobody else's primary job. Everybody else has a job to do. So if the officer is shooting and not doing the things that they're supposed to be doing, they're not getting done. Just about everybody in a platoon is capable of coordinating and doing those things that are needed. um, But they also have a job that they're focused on. If they turn around and you're not doing yours, it all starts to fall apart. A medic has an M4, but you know, most of the time they're just kind of in the back undercover ready to go somewhere ready to sprint to someone they're not they're not getting in this narrow tunnel vision because everybody else they're getting they're getting in hyper tunnel vision on exactly their line their left and right limits who's immediately to their left and right and that's it where's the enemy point point name out so everybody knows and and get it down range it's a very focused very focused and narrow thing for a for a fire team to be working on when you're laying down um, some sort of fire or even assaulting the ground. Um, and it can take away, it takes your eye off the prize, if you will. Same thing with a platoon sergeant. A platoon sergeant is the senior enlisted guy in the platoon. In conventional times, that platoon sergeant's been around for a decade, at least. A um, little different here in, in Band of Brothers, but they're, they're doing logistics in the back too. They're, they're gonna deal with casualties. They're gonna deal with ammo issues. Um, sort of behind the scenes thing and it's got to be tough for them because just prior to that they were a squad leader and squad leaders are completely badass they're leading the charge i mean they are they are the iron mic of follow me it's um it's the squad leader and so that platoon sergeant has to learn to let's say hold their tongue hold their fire that's not the role that they're in anymore their experience and wisdom as applied to the platoon is bigger than, than just, again, the rounds downrange. So I think the last thing I want to hit on here is right towards the end of the episode, they're in the church, they're, I want to say relaxing, but I understand that's probably relative. Um, better than they had it, maybe, is what I'll say. 
and there's an interaction between Lipton and uh, and Spears, where Lipton kind of wants to ask, "Did you do the things that everybody thinks you did?" And Spears says something along the lines of, "There's value in your guys thinking you're the biggest badass out there." As in, I'm not going to deny it, I'm not going to confirm it. It helps if they just think you're, you know, the hardest dude in the European theater. What do you think about that? I think actions speak louder than words. So he can have that reputation. But the question is, why did everybody believe it? Um, because what if that same reputation happened about Dyke? And um, I think that that was, I think that, that singular event of whatever, the mowing down the prisoners is, it, it's a small part of it. And the small part is everything else that um, Spears has done since then. Jump to Koa, jumping into Normandy. He is, he's an Iron Mike. He leads from the front, follow me. Um, cares about his soldiers, gives them their, um, gives them their intent. He trusts them. Winters is the same way. And whether they think Winters, let's say they think Winters is the wise one. Winters is still a badass. Is is going to be on the front lines with everybody else. And Spears is the aggressive one. Um, and I think there is value, but it only works if he's got. He has to prove it every day, though. I guess is what I'm saying. That that story isn't just from uh, six months ago that everybody just assumes is true. And now, for here on out, Spears is a badass. He continued to prove himself every single day. You know, we, we don't know all through Bastogne, but, you know, I can almost guarantee he's it never stopped that aggression, that um, the tough demeanor. You can't fake that stuff. You can't fake it. So I think it's regardless of whatever happened in the story, the fact that they believed him um, being the toughest, baddest guy is a good thing. And he probably was. He can't say that. Hey, I'm a bad motherfucker. Um, <laughs> but I think especially after um, someone like Dyke, who is the opposite of that, is a morale booster for the company. It is a morale booster. Just like Lipton um, wanted to stop people from talking shit about Dyke in the foxholes because it's, um, it's malignant, it's cancerous, that negativity again. And uh, it loses trust and confidence of your leaders. And that's not a good thing at all. It's very, it's not good. Um, this is the exact opposite. This is like, um, allowing them to tell the rumor and you allow them to tell the rumor so that they believe that they are um, they can trust that their leaders are looking out for them and the leaders will uh, suffer with them as well they're right there with them and that right there is how you continue to get forward progress in the middle of an open field with Germans shooting at you and to keep moving forward into that hail of gunfire so there's a couple parts to that story because there's the one about he, he shot some prisoners on D-Day and then it comes up later and they say, well, actually it was closer to 30 or some crazy number. Right. So that number goes up. Then there's the story that he shot one of his own guys for sleeping. Right. Found a guy. Sleeping that's, and oh, shot that's him. another one. I forgot about that. But then on top of that, somebody else says what I did see was he took that fourth gun at Brecourt Manor all by himself. There you go. Remember? So there's a lot to this. It's not, you know, he's a badass because he executed prisoners. I don't want to, I don't want to leave it sitting there because that's uh, I don't know that that's the phrase I would use. Um, right. But 
there's a lot there. And I, my thought with this is it's working for Spears, but this wouldn't work for everybody. And if yeah. you try to create this situation, it's not going to be good. I mean, how do you, how do you fake this? How do you, so anyways, I, I feel like he's, he's successfully taking advantage of these rumors and these this persona that's been built around him. I would just caution anybody who's, you know, wants to replicate that and have their people think that they're the biggest, baddest dude out there. That seems like it's got to happen organically. Well, and you also have to think that nothing matters at this point, but just the mission and getting home after and um, doing what you got to do. And so you let, Hey, we can talk about our feelings. We can talk about our other shit later. Cause right now we, we just don't have time for that. And what we need to be is the most combat effective unit that we can. I mean, that, that is reality. And you, you don't have time to like, what if, and think about, well, is it really proper? Um, I know we did mention tact with Lipton and all of that. Um, but it's, it's chaos. It is, I don't it's somewhat controlled chaos, but it is chaos. And you're just, you're making the best out of what you have. I like it. It's a good place to end episode seven. Talking about the breaking point. Um, up next, episode eight, the last patrol. We get a little, little West Point action in there. So I get to talk about that, but. You probably Sarah, love all the West Point scenes and movies. Cause they really. Oh, that's it. Yeah. It's. I mean, it's already annoying being an officer the way officers get trade all the damn time. At least we take, we're, not talk, we're talking some pretty good ones now, but a lot of times officers always get shit on. Now, on top of that, West Point officers get it even worse. Dude, I know so. this is episode, so the last patrol, they, they, uh, it's not a good look for West Point. I'll say that. Well, but. I don't know. Well, we'll talk about it, but there's some, there's some, again, people making the best of a shitty situation. There you go. Well, Episode 8, The Last Patrol. That's next time on War Stories. Looking forward to it. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.